2: This is a crowd podcast.
0: We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.
2: Hemingway. Eichmann. Stranger in a strange land.
3: A very long book. A very, very, very long book.
2: A dirty book, it wishes. Hello again, and welcome to episode 84 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick.
3: I am Tom Fordyce.
2: Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with the book Stranger in a Strange Land.
3: Talk about strange, Katie.
2: Oh, my goodness. I'm a little strange out by this. So um, 600-plus pages, I've been making assiduous and careful notes As I read through of all the sex scenes and Ah. listeners, no need to start unzipping your trousers and getting comfortable (laughs) as I'm about to read them, because by calling them sex scenes, that's somewhat overselling it. So we're dealing with the perspective of a Martian by the name of Valentine Michael Smith. He's actually a human who grew up on Mars. And uh, he's come to Earth, and he's trying to get in with the Earthlings and understand their physical ways. So what we learn here is Valentine Michael Smith had grokked when first he had known it fully that physical human love, very human and very physical, was not simply a necessary quickening of eggs. (laughs) And he goes on from there. So quickening of eggs is doing the dirty. So if you can achieve tumescence with that (laughs) kind of filth, hats off to you. And then if he talks about other body parts, like lady bumps, uh, breasts are referred to as mm, mammary glands.
3: (laughs) (laughs) This is an extraordinary book, Katie. Stranger in a Strange Land. It's a massive (laughs) sci-fi hit in 1961 and completely inappropriately we have someone who's not a stranger and they're not in a strange place it's our old favorite cara rodway back once again cara if you don't remember her from her many previous appearances on fire is the deputy head of the eccles center for american studies cara welcome back
0: well thank you very much um yeah this is this is a weird one thank you for inviting me to talk about (laughs) a very large and very strange book
3: So give us a brief summary of what this remarkable book is about, Kara.
0: The the premise is the most exciting bit. The idea is that we're in a kind of a sort of near future. It's published in 61. It's some sort of post-Third World War moment, but there's a sort of federation of of peaceful countries and space exploration is real. And a spaceship went off to Mars um, with humans on board and a human child was born on Mars, but all the rest of the mission perish and he's been bought up by the Martians. About 21 years later, the humans get back to Mars, and the Martians sort of send uh, Mike back with the humans. So that sort of setup is quite alluring and it's quite exciting, and you kind of have this opportunity to experience Mike's naivety and innocence because whilst he's human, he has been taught to think and live like a Martian, and so you know gravity is too heavy for him, and so he's in this sort of military hospital. And you have the sort of the first third of the book is really about. Kind of some of this chicanery around kind of, you know, is he going to be sort of held by the, the government or some sort of, you know, so sort of kind of a bit of political stuff, bit of action, because he's then sort of broken out of the hospital by one of the nurses and her boyfriend who's a journalist. Yeah, you get it gets quite action packed, exciting scenes. And then. Jill, the, the nurse, uh, remembers that her boyfriend Ben, the journalist now missing, had said, "Oh, you should take him to Jabal, who's uh, my friend. He's a famous writer, and he will—he'll know what to do, and he'll look after us." And unfortunately, you arrive in the Jabal sections, and it slows down, <laughs> and it becomes very discursive. It's very much, you know smug characters talking to each other for yeah. long passages. He's so, just
2: holding forth, isn't he, that Jabal? So, so
0: Jabal, who basically I just thought was Hugh Hefner, that's the image I got. <laughs> He's like this old dude in a bathrobe, kind of presiding over his harem, with a, and there's a lot, of, a lot of talk of swimming pools. Oh, uh, yes. So he starts to chat with Mike about sort of the nature of human, and there's a lot of discussion about kind of uh, the role of government and the role of religion and morality. And as I say, the plot kind of slows down. There's a bit of stuff you think it's going to get quite exciting. Mike is uh, unimaginably wealthy because of some sort of business about the fact that his parents were really rich and he's been left these stocks. And then something about them colonising the moon and that means that he might be the owner of Mars as like the first human. So you sort of think it's going in one direction and then sort of the Jubal character kind of wraps it all up neatly and kind of it's just... <laughs> thrown away so yeah so then you kind of there's kind of the challenges slightly disappear which then means that you're really left with the the chat and so then Mike sort of grows with his understanding of humanness he groks uh, as the terminology is which is meant to be sort of to understand empathize and eventually he and Jill sort of go off on their own and he sort of goes out into the human world and I thought oh, that, this could get quite interesting and it just gets a bit odd, continues to be odd because he turns up in a carnival being a magician but like doing actual miracles because he has this Martian like mind control thing going on so like he's actually levitating her hmm. which is yeah <laughs> and then, then they go off to Las Vegas and Jill decides to become a showgirl and this helps her lose her, her inhibitions and she sees that she is sexy and that actually sex really is like the ultimate form of, of knowing and this is how we should ourselves and each other. And then the, the kind of final third of the book is Mike founding what is essentially sort of a cult, yet also a language school, because, you know, yeah. the two definitely <laughs> go together. So, so, he, de- story, so he decides that if he can teach everybody Martian, because Martian language is... <laughs> allows you to, to to comprehend the universe in a different way. If he can teach a all Martian, they will all grow together as water brothers, which is this sort of terminology for this kind of unifying of yourself with others, which definitely involves the what are the egg quote you had. Yeah, at, yeah you the, the, egg, at the, top, the egg the egg quickening, quickening of the eggs. Yes. Um, if so if everyone can learn if everyone can learn Martian, they can uh, they can basically save humanity sort of through you know, by teaching everybody this at a higher level of being. But at the same time, Mike's slightly torn, although it's never really well developed, between the fact that he's realised that he isn't really a Martian, he's really a human, and actually humans have sex and that's what makes humans great. Uh, whereas Martians don't, they they don't that their reproduction is completely divorced from this idea of grokking or kind of coming close with other other martians mm. so yeah so then you kind of he they found this this cult the church of all worlds and there's this par- this parallel church called the fosterites which is kind of sort of satirized in the book but sort of not and again the get, difference gets a bit odd and it's hard to understand quite what he's getting at anyway then to ruin the plot horribly for those of you who've not made it through 600 pages um <laughs> there's sort of this kind of rebellion against the church which is basically preaching kind of free love and it's, it's sort of like seen as a sort of a moral commune because they don't know Martian they don't understand so wait um,
2: there's a rebellion against the free love or the free lovers are rebelling against Mike the Martian no no no
0: no. There's this, uh, so the outside world okay. takes umbrage with the church of the new world okay. and they like their, their church is firebombed and everyone escapes by teleportation um, neat th- this really, really makes it sound more exciting than it is I know you're really selling it <laughs> it's because I'm remembering all the fun bits and not doing 600 pages of men chatting to each other um, you know smoking cigars and drinking whiskey because apparently the future looks a lot like sort of 1952
2: it really um, <laughs> does I mean there's so many beautiful secretaries coming in and serving drinks and snacks no and I mean at, at one point I was like oh, is
0: any man ever going to walk into the kitchen and then suddenly they acquire, no. they acquire a male chef so that's alright but he's called Tony So and he makes spaghetti anyway <laughs> so the, so the conclusion is is the church is firebombed and Mike is basically lynched but in this very beatific Moment where he's basically Christ like, kind of glowing golden and standing in front of them, but they still held bricks at him. And then, you know, there's quite sort of violent descriptions of his kind of dismembering. And then he uh, discorporates, which is their sort of term, Martian term for kind of going to the next level. He dies. And then the idea is that all of his disciples who have learnt Martian are going to possibly save humanity but not really sure. But well, mostly they've gone back to Jabal's place with the swimming pool. Yeah, and cigars and, whiskey, and yeah. hot tubs.
2: I mean, yeah, it's a cliffhanger. So Mike the Martian, uh, obviously the original influencer, the author Robert Heinlein has created quite a fascinating world that seems like an over-elaboration of a 14-year-old boy's fantasy of what adult life is like. I'm wondering if we could just touch on the nature of the kind of splash it made because obviously Billy Joel felt completely compelled to include it in his magnum opus. So why were people excited about it? Was all was it all that sexy talk about uh Well I don't I don't think it's the, quickening? <laughs> I th- Yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean So I think I think it's the fact that in and this is one of those things where it's, you know, reading it kind of decades later. I think you have to put yourself back in the mind of, of a you know late fifties, early sixties readers that mm. this was challenging social mores. The idea that, you right. know, polyamorous, you know, relationships and you know, the sort of it's got this very libertarian streak about kind of, you know, which at once is very attractive to sort of the right wing, which obviously America was quite conservative in the nineteen fifties, but then it's also then picked up by the sort of nascent hippie movement. So it manages to sort of simultaneously, I think, talk to a lot of sort of social trends. And I mean the religion in the US was actually, you know, it, it was on the up in terms of attendance in the 50s but also you know this is starting to be the period we have the other sort of eastern philosophies come in think of you know like the beat writers you know they're Mm. they're very interested in kind of oriental philosophies and it's also an era when you know because it's a little bit exciting you know it's it's sort of got sexiness in it even though it's actually not super sexy uh as, as you've rightly illustrated i think that people do recommend it to their friends it's like have you read it it's like it's amazing like I, I, my full suspicion is a lot of people read it and are like, oh, I'll, I'll pick the bits I like, but actually that's right. it. it's really boring.
3: I wonder, Katie, if it's one of those books that gets a reputation, um, maybe in schools or colleges or um, around dinner tables and people buy it as a result of that and then they read it and never make it to the end.
0: Mm. One of those yeah, I think that, that's, that's 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 quite possible. And I think, you know, Heinlein was was well known as a writer of what they call juvenile fiction. So he basically spends the fifties um, writing one book every year for his publisher that's basically for a youth, a male youth market that always came out sort of in the autumn just before Christmas. So I, I tried to explain the structure of the book and I think that the the, the production history of it kind of speaks to that. So he, he had apparently had the idea for Stranger in Strangeland. In the late 1940s, one of the sort of inspiration points was his wife saying, you know, could you do a sort of modern jungle book? And so rather than being raised by wolves, you know, Mowgli's raised by the Martians, like what would that do? And that's quite interesting. As I say, a lot of the kind of conceptual, the starting points are all quite interesting. Yeah, And so he apparently started making notes for it in this moment when he's writing for young for young readers and you get a lot of that sense because mike is sort of naive he comes back yeah. to earth and kind of it's all about sort of learning and growing and kind of making a way in this sort of dastardly adult world and then he puts it aside works on all these other sort of juvenile projects and then he has this big change in his in his work kind of in the late 50s when there's a lot of debate obviously about nuclear power and the bomb There's a move away from doing, um, I think it's atmospheric nuclear testing, and uh, Heinlein, who's uh, who was a navy man professionally, he's a he's an engineer by profession before he kind of moves into his writing, is really horrified by this. He thinks that this is this is you know this is not where America should be going. We should not be you know reducing our military capacity. You know the Soviets will come for us, and so he stops writing the juvenile books and and writes um, Starship Troopers, which is the other book he's probably most famous for, which is. uber-militaristic book about basically, you know, communists as bugs metaphor. You know, you've got to go and fight the sort of hive mind, mindless bugs. So Starship Troopers kind of basically then launched him into this more sort of adult mode. And so then he writes Stranger in Strange Land. So lots of people sort of looking at his Works sort of chart this difference and I think you can really see it that he had as I say he'd started work on on the book at a previous moment you get this sort of all this sort of opening bits which are actually are a bit more interesting kind of in that sort of world building kind of making you sort of you know disassociating you making you question things yeah and then you sort of then he picks it up in this sort of you know the world's going to hell in a handcart moment and mm-hmm. starts sort of discursing and that's when it all super slows down
2: let's talk a little bit about the vibe of the book, the tone. Um, It seems a a little indigestibly whimsical to me. Like, a, a lot of the tone comes from the naivete of Mike the Martian, who is very, like, Oh, explain your earthways to me. <laughs> I I see you humans pressing your lips against each other, <laughs> and um, it that becomes very wearying to me. But I think, but the that, author thinks that he's being kind of cutesy with it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And but that's also simultaneously so that sort of naivety is then simultaneously set against this kind of. Overwhelming smugness of all of the adult male characters. Yeah,
2: and there's a lot of smugness, there's, and there's a lot of men in there. Yeah,
0: so so you have you have Jubal, very much the kind of Heinlein stand-in. You know, he's oh, yeah. he's a sort of super successful, popular author, but he's also a doctor and a lawyer, and he knows um, everything. everything. And he knows everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so so this is this sort of idea, you know, which people talk about. I think occurs a lot in in Heinlein's fiction is the idea of the competent man, the idea that you have to be over everything so that no one can control you. You know, you you know, you are. This is mm-hmm. how you're going to be the libertarian individual and control your own destiny is by being across everything and that's really comes across in the jubal character then you get a bit in ben the journalist but they have it's very odd because the dialogue really when i first started reading i was like this sounds like a kind of 1940s like quick talking you know kind of like
2: Screwball. Screwball
0: drama. Like, yeah. it's like, you know, it's all these sort of, you know, there's like little payoffs between Ben and his girlfriend Jill and it's all these sort of quick fire. And then everyone's constantly banter. like, yeah, the banter. And then it's sort of jokes where obviously Heinlein means it to be, sort of make everyone sort of sound sophisticated and like they're getting over their sort of, you know, sexual hang-ups. But actually mm-hmm. it just ends up sounding really really misogynistic and like you know yeah so that yeah the women definitely are very underdeveloped in comparison with these men who get to speak a lot. not with their mammary glands are not underdeveloped no or the or the sort of lascivious kind of descriptions of the tattooed woman who turns up in the sort of in the kind of later half of the book um who likes being naked and draped in snakes and it's just like it's like some (laughs) sort of 12 year old fantasy that's exactly
3: how it came across to me and then katie you referred to it as a 14 year old fantasy that's how it Comes across, and I couldn't work out if Heinlein, the author, has done this deliberately to appeal to his audience, right. or whether he is still a fourteen-year-old boy.
0: Good point. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not entirely sure either because you're left quite confused. I think that lots of the different sections don't necessarily meld together, no. like I said, and also, you know, I think where he thinks he's being satirical about some things just doesn't quite work, and so you're then left with this feeling that actually, well you know maybe he does think that some of this is actually quite utopian and kind of good but where am i meant to sort of stand because See, it, yeah. this is the
2: problem that i have car the the tone wibbly wobbliness of like is this the satire bit or is this him preaching yeah and it, it becomes really unclear it's as to unclear. kind of where
0: you, where you are. and given that he's got a lot of pages to do it i can't help feeling that actually that's a bit of a failure on the part of the author that you can't you don't I mean, maybe he was just un- unsure i mean he said later that he wanted the book to just propose questions and and he got yeah. a bit frustrated that a lot of a lot of readers had taken it and gone, oh, my goodness, like this, you know, if we all just like had free love and kind of got over our hang ups, then like and if like, frankly, all the women were constantly sexually available and like wouldn't turn me down, uh, like the world would be great. And it's like, well, he he sort of said, oh, no, he backed away from that. Said, "Oh no, yeah. no, no, that's that's not what I meant. I was he, just asking questions. Yeah, but You're he, like, well, he wrote
2: an incel fantasy and now he's trying to cover his ass pretty much
3: it's also I mean it's a a long book anyway it's 160,000 words it was originally 220,000 words so so, I mean here we are struggling with certain chapters or certain um, epic sections of boredom and the editors <laughs> have done us a massive favour <laughs> by trimming 60,000 words off
0: it. I think he trimmed it, though, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he did. He did. So, so did it, t- he? it took about a year. So apparently he'd finished it in 1960, but basically had this sort of year of kind of back and forth with the editor. And he did cut a lot by, by by all accounts. But I think in then cutting, he then actually had to put in some new stuff to then try and explain how you've got to places. But he, he refused to kind of take out the sort of religion and sexuality bits, which is basically where he saw the, sort of the heart of the book. So all I can imagine is that he, he chopped out yet more men drinking whiskey and yeah. smoking
2: cigarettes
0: <laughs> and discursing on, you know, the failed nature of organised religion.
3: Katie, I found from Robert Hyland his five rules for writing. And as someone who has spent a lot of his life writing, I was quite interested by these. Yeah. I then found myself slightly underwhelmed for reasons that may become apparent. Rule number one of his rules for writing, you must write. Okay, yeah, probably had got that far, Robert. Number two, finish what you start. Yeah, makes sense. Number three, interestingly, bearing in mind what we've just said, refrain from rewriting except to editorial order. Oh. So I get a sense of sort of anger there that he's been made to chop (laughs) 60,000 words off his massive book. Um, Points four and five are really quite prosaic. Point four is put story to market. And point five is keep story on market until it is sold.
0: Yeah, so there's, I mean, that, that, when I read those, it really spoke to me of the kind of, there is this very curious sort of, let's you know, say, libertarian capitalism. Story sort of stream that goes through the writing and by all accounts Milton Friedman sort of picked him up kind of in in later years and and sort of you know some of his ideas formed into his thinking it's economic thinking so one of the things that Heinlein is credited with is popularising the phrase there ain't no such thing as a free lunch
3: Ah I thought that was a Milton special
0: It's not so it comes from Heinlein who borrowed it in turn from somebody else Um, And
3: Milton is just to explain he's the sort of father of monetarism.
0: Yeah and Heinlein's politics is really a sort of basically the, the, the trajectory of, of the US in the mid 20th century because he starts out, he, he has to leave the Navy because he gets medical discharge. And so in the 1930s, he's in California and he gets really involved with locals sort of radical democratic politics. So he helps Upton Sinclair, the author, try and run for governor. He's really involved. I think it's called EPIC and I can't remember what the anagram stands for. It's a poverty reduction kind of campaign. But then World War Two has this m- massive change on him. Sort of, you know, then in the 1950s, he basically just gets increasingly conservative, um, you know, very much that sort of anti-communism. By 64, he's helping Goldwater's presidential campaign, you know, for the Republicans. Oh, my so, you gosh. Know, so that's, he is so right-wing, Goldwater. Yeah, so that's a re- you know, and, and I think that's one thing that's quite interesting to see. And as I said, particularly the sort of libertarian tendencies you know which have always obviously been in american culture this idea of you know that sort of the frontier and the self-made man and the fact that you know we're going to break away from repressive rule of, of Britain and we're going to go it alone and you know, all that sort of stuff that you can trace through so many aspects of in continuing contemporary American life and sort of political thought. So yeah, so that's I think is, is one thing that's quite interesting about him at this tipping point that, you know, he gets embraced by conservatives uh, in the 1960s but he's then also basically embraced by the hippies. You know, they they see all this, you know, loving in the nest as it's called which is basically, it's just more Hugh Hefner, honestly. Oh, it's loving just like in a, the nest. Is it's, that, a car- it's basically like a carpeted sex room. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> With that's snakes, really cool. <laughs> shag carpeted, I hope hey, Very much, that's definitely the description <laughs> Sort of soft underfoot
2: And and also I like that everybody, once they're inducted into this cult This very promiscuous cult Because, you know, you can't have a cult without promiscuous sex It goes together like scotch eggs and brown sauce, pretty much <laughs> um, But yeah, I like how everybody refers to each other as water brothers No matter if they're ladies or gents and that that is, so
0: I read a literary critic talking about it, which I think have the quite interesting point that one of the things that Heinlein does with the language is he, he, he does force you to take a step away by incorporating terminology that doesn't totally make sense, like mm. Water Brothers or like grok, which is a, you know, is a created word. You... You as the reader, even if, you know, for a split second, you have to pause because it's like it doesn't, it just doesn't momentarily work. And so that does make you as a reader sort of step out and do the questioning that obviously Heinlein sort of wants you to do. But the Water Brother thing is, it it just gets odder because obviously, so it's all this free love. And you're like, you know, Mike is the Martian. He's on this very intellectual sort of plane. And I sort of thought, oh, this could go in quite interesting you know, pansexual ways, mm-hmm. but of course it doesn't. As soon as any suggestion of you know wanting to to kiss a male water brother, no, there's no, that there's no, shut down. There's no man on man action here, none at all. And, yeah. and and there's some really kind of really un- unpleasant and unfortunate kind of lines describing the sort of the wrongness of the in between, basically meaning the homosexual. No. It's just horrible. Similarly, as we've sort of, we've you know alluded to, you then. You know, when everyone's freed of their sexual inhibitions, all that means is that all the women will want to sleep with all the men.
2: Yeah, <laughs> finally, they finally. got the, they got their head right on that one. <laughs> you
0: know, no, no idea that actually, you know, even if they were offered that choice, women might actually be picky. They might actually want, you know, no, to, to say they don't you know, know what? what they want. So the, that that you know, those kinds of themes the, the Water Brother is meant to kind of encompass this sort of this this you know utopian almost you know kind of openness, and it it definitely doesn't in the book.
2: Spread them. So let's talk about grok, Um, very interested in that. In fact, I recall that Margaret MacMillan, who was our H-bomb guest and our England's Got a New Queen guest, Mm. used the word grok when we were chatting, and I now realize that she may be a water brother, Um, but this is- Thou art God. Thou art God. We are all God (laughs) and ready to get moist, apparently. Um, my eggs are just quickening thinking about it. But Grok, that's a very interesting uh, creation. That much like no such thing as a free lunch, he popularized and in fact he created this term. And that's quite a big impact for somebody who who is advocating the force and the impact of of words, you know, on culture and the the power of language to change minds and to elevate society. It seems to me, Carr, that the use of the Word almost operated like a a secret handshake at the time for those yeah. in the know. I, th- I think you're totally
0: right, and I think that's you know it's like that with you know with many sort of cultural products that kind of get to that point of being kind of defining of an era or of a moment you know the fact that you're in the know that you can reference it that you can margaret's of, a, of an age i'm sure she wouldn't mind me pointing out that you know she would have been there this you know this time around you know um and maybe that's you know that's a sort of hangover from from her own you know experiences as a, as a young person yeah but it's it, you know it's in it's in the the you know, oxford english dictionary it, it's you know it's become that level of uh, of importance as you say
3: There are other things, Kara, that Heinlein is supposed to not have invented, but have seen coming. And I always wonder, Katie, with science fiction authors, they're basically throwing a lot of darts, aren't they? Yeah. What's going to happen? And they're going to hit the dartboard with some of these darts. So um, I've read that he comes up with the idea, slightly strangely, Kara, of the waterbed.
0: This is um, one of my favourites. I, oh. I have to say, um, oh. yeah. So, so, so as as Mike the Martian is lying in the hospital, it becomes apparent that it's a sort of waterbed, and that kind of I, that did make me think. I was like, oh, when is the waterbed from? Because I'd never given it much thought. Right. But in this again, sort of slightly Hugh Hefnerish <laughs> um, trend with the book. Um, no, so it's a, my my favourite my favourite thing with this this is is that so. Heinlein had been, as I said, he'd had this period of sickness in the in the early 30s, he spent a lot of time in hospital, and apparently out of this experience of basically being in bed a lot, he had come up with this idea for a waterbed that would that would be more comfortable for the patient, you know. So it was very much in this sort of medical context. And he so he uses he mentioned the waterbed in another story, and then again in this one. And then in nineteen sixty-eight, a man called Charles Pryor Hall tried to patent a, a waterbed. But the patent patent was turned down because it had, there had been previous artistic representation pointing to Heinlein's work. Huh. Um, so then what I then enjoyed, there was the little little detail that obviously Mr. Hall continued to fight it because he was like, I can see a good thing here. Um, and eventually in 1971 was granted a patent for his, um, his variation
2: yeah, yeah, it's you know what? Here I am mocking Robert Heinlein, but he came up with the waterbed and he invented grok. So those are both really...
3: Well, also, Katie, he apparently came up with the idea or discusses something similar to the cell phone 38 years before oh. it's actually done.
0: <gasps> so he was very interested in technology. So he was he was an engineer. And so but then that's always the joy of reading old science fiction is obviously what works and what doesn't. Yeah, We all know that the Star Trek communicator is like, you know, basically became a mobile phone (laughs) and that's quite enjoyable. But, you know, there's funny things in this book where, like, and they the only way that they can imagine a big TV is like a big TV, and you know how like a, like fifties TVs were like massive because you had the whole like you, the screen had the big like tunnel behind it. To get, yeah, they so were very deep. They were very deep. So all the descriptions of like these TV screens, it's not like you know you just pulled That's you just screen. you just pulled down a curtain and projected on it. It's right. like it's like they're just huge and they're called stereovision. I think the idea is meant to be that maybe they're slightly three D. I'm not sure, but they're, they're, it's just the fact that they were always described as massive, which really made me
3: laugh. <laughs> This is an advertisement from Better Help Therapy Online. Hello, fire listeners, it's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about Better Help. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So that is BetterHelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So, last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com/wdstf50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com/wdstf50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. There are other tropes uh, that are uh, Martian friend. I don't know if he introduces them to science fiction or, he, or he's reflecting them but they are classics of the genre. So when he comes down to earth he he can't understand war. Of course, he can't understand war. No alien has ever understood war. He can't understand clothing, which is handy for the free love that it will follow, and he can't understand jealousy.
0: Yeah, well, the idea is that the Martians are, you know, a race that's developed kind of beyond the sort of the need for the corporate. they are like our better selves. Yeah, that's sort of the idea. But again, there's a lot of kind of of of, uh, of uncertainty in the book. You're not totally sure whether. It's all a good thing that the Martians are so well, sort of kind of cerebral because then actually there's a sort of there's a comment that actually this is towards the end again sorry plot spoilers for those of you you know on page 550 um <laughs> there's there's a sudden there's a realization Mike realizes because he has this telepathy he realizes that actually that he had been a spy that the Martian elders had sent him and he, they'd basically used him to to learn all they could about earth and they've then just broken their connection with him and he suddenly says well, you realize that The asteroid belt used to be a planet and the Martians destroyed it like millennia ago. And I'm worried that they're going to do this to Earth. So this is partly why I want to teach everybody how to speak in Martian, how to, you know, understand this higher moment so that they they can save humanity and basically convince the Martians not to get rid of us.
2: I want to talk about the famous adherence to the book's message. Uh, You talked earlier about the fact that it seemed to appeal equally to right wingers and hippies. Charles Manson is mysteriously attached to the book, mysteriously, I say, because apparently he was illiterate.
0: Yes. And so the the version of the story, again, this is slightly contested. I think there's sort of Heinlein um, fans who would like to kind of move as far away from the association, <laughs> understandably, with Manson as, as sure. you can. So in in 63, he's in he's in jail. And you know he's had the sort of life of petty crime. And he hears other prisoners talking about Stranger in a Strange Land and also L. Ron Hubbard's book, which I'm now going to Dianetics. Get the title. Thank you, Dianetics. Yeah, so that's which is the, the beginning of, of Scientology. Yeah, so it's this early fifties kind of self-help manual that then basically becomes Scientology. And yeah, so Manson doesn't actually read them. He just mm. basically is, you know, absorbs he absorbs, it, he the absorbs the them. And this is obviously part of his sort of, you know, awful Skill is that he manages to sort of, you know, to, to draw in all these influences. And then by the time he's out of prison in '67, he kind of, you know, he's reformed himself as the sort of street preacher in Hay Tashbury, gathering adherence to his kind of, you know, totally sort of bizarre sort of pop culture melding of all these different influences, you know, from the Beatles through to Stranger and Strange Land. So he does. And you know, again, you know, he definitely didn't wade through all the all the boring you know bits about the nature of religion. What he picks up is the rituals. So the water sharing, he kind of introduces that to his followers. He, they use uh, grok and grokking as part of the sort of cult terminology. Um, and then also he, you know, he has this promise of transcendence. You know, he tells his followers, so if you know, if you follow yeah. me, you will reach the higher plane. Um, but he definitely wants it just for his adherents. If you remember, for the outside world, he wants this horrible race war that's going to destroy, yeah, destroy everything else. And he and his followers will then be in command of the kind of broken human race so yeah and he did apparently called one of the one of his children Michael
2: Valentine there's definitely a
0: connection and that uh, new kind of scandal around the book obviously had already been hand-wringing about the fact that it proposed you know this sort of challenge to contemporary social mores you know through sort of free love and that that was this suitable for say school libraries and then obviously the connection to, to Manson when it kind of emerged you know, It's obviously a hideous connection. I think it's obviously added to it you know, and gave it its an it certain infamy.
3: So I think that's, uh, without wishing to defend Heinlein too much, because I'm not an enormous fan of this book, Katie. <laughs> um, when he starts being blamed for Charles Manson in the way that some people try and blame the White Album for Charles Manson, you feel like pointing out that Charles Manson was an absolute lunatic who sucked in various things. And the things that made Charles Manson do the things he did weren't uh, Beatles songs. No, composed it was... by Paul McCartney with loads of heavy metal <laughs> reverb on them or science fiction books. They were the stuff going on in his head.
0: Very much so and and you know he obviously yeah he, he, he pulled it all together in a way that made sense to him and which he then realised that he could use you know in this very sort of awfully sort of zeitgeisty way. He basically pulled in all these features that were attractive in popular culture, in science fiction, in the formation of a, of a, of a cult in terms of Scientology and then, and then mixed them all together in this really sort of hideous explosive moment and then obviously you know as, as many commentators then point out obviously you know Sharon Tate's murder and the, the Manson family as the sort of you know this kind of awful end of the freedom of the 60s.
3: It also links Katie and one of our tendrils that, that Billy spreads out also links us the Manson story to our second episode which was Doris Day yes. because it's Doris Day's son Terry Melcher who's the record producer who records Charles Manson's first efforts and then it's Terry Melcher he's trying to get revenge on isn't it when he
2: when he goes to Terry Melcher's house old house old which house is
3: where Polanski and Tate are he, renting
2: yeah because Terry Melcher declined to uh, give Manson a record contract yeah. so he blamed him for stepping on his dreams yeah it, it's a it's a weird tangled little strange pop culture web for sure one of the things that interests me Cara is this insistence on the idea of language being able to elevate people and salvage our worst tendencies, which is very naive. It would be lovely if it were true, but in my research, I noted online there's a lot of Very zealous defenders of the book just saying, oh, anyone who's casting aspersions on it, who don't get it, who are mocking it for its perceived limitations, you just need to do a deeper reading of it. You didn't (laughs) properly grok it. And it's that kind of idea. You see it kind of coming up often with young men towards figures like Jordan Peterson, you know, that uh, Canadian college professor or Elon Musk, these sort of figures who are a little messiah-like and a a little almost culty who do tend to hold forth pedantically. And they may or may not be brilliant, but still, they do have their adherence. And it seems that... Uh, Robert Heinlein attracts that same sort of thing, like you know that to me that's just so funny. It's like, oh, you don't like it? You just need to eat more of it. Like you yeah. hate spinach? Well, will eat a spanakopita and have cream spinach and have a spinach shake, and then you'll <laughs> love it. Like no, I really just don't like that. Flavor.
0: No, and I
2: think one of the the, the things that we were talking earlier about
0: the sort of tone of the book and the style, and I called it smug, but part of that is comes from the fact that all of these characters, particularly the men are drawn with incredible confidence you know they all announce all of their all of their observations as if they are fact, you know, you couldn't possibly question this you know, this is just how it is and there's a certain sense of self-assurance which I think is quite attractive or it can descend into smugness and it just really (laughs) depends on your the point that you approach the work from
3: So he's one of the big three of the science fiction writers of this period isn't he, Heinlein, there's him, there's Isaac Asimov and there's Arthur C. Clarke Now Carol, this is not really my genre but I looked at that, were there any women writing science fiction at this time or was it a very male genre?
0: No, I mean I I don't think there were, it's a very male genre there probably were a few, you know, I would imagine that, you know, if you Google, I'm sure you can find some women maybe writing under pseudonyms. You know, there was an explosion in science fiction writing, particularly in the 1950s. This is the golden age of sci-fi. You've got Astounding Science Fiction magazine, which incubated a lot of these writers, including Heinlein. You know, as we've been doing with this book, it's quite hard to find really sort of positive female characters who aren't, you know, completely you know, aren't completely you're know, hamstrung by having to you know be super sexy all the time, or you know. So it's um it, it definitely I think it takes sort of into into the 70s, and I think sort of second wave feminism before you start to see that more more um, diversity coming into the sort of the science fiction publishing realm.
2: I guess you could throw Mary Shelley Frankenstein in there but she's kind of uh, the the one towering example. Yeah, you know, in she, a, in a field of nothing. Yes,
0: and I think, you know, but she is incredibly obviously influential, you yeah. know, particularly on the the monster story, the kind of dangers of science, you know, all these themes that then yeah, but but she's writing 150 years before mm-hmm. this, you know, it's a mm-hmm. it's a long it's a long time. Um, and, you know, you, you do then get into Ursula Gwynn and sort of, you know, other figures who, who appear later. But I definitely, you know, you don't think of 50s science fiction as a sort of golden era for women's sci-fi writing.
3: Um, and what is it about that period, particularly in America, that means science fiction is such a huge genre? What's it reflecting in the wider world?
0: Well, some of it is just, you know, the fact that technology is advancing at kind of breakneck speed. You know, there's I came and had a, you know, enjoyable chat with you guys in the, the Dacron episode mm. about, you know, how futuristic people wanted their homes to be. This idea that, you know, that 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 technology was going to save us but there's obviously also the underside particularly the result of the, the atomic bomb end of world war 2 that actually it's also going to be mankind's undoing so this that tension around you know at once these sort of all these all this wonderful technology that's making our lives better you know be that television in the home or the microwave or a dishwasher but at the same time you know there's mutually assured destruction and the globe just witnessed the destructive power of of science in you know Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so and, and also obviously then you have the space race, which is the major other major context. You know you have the the you know the Nazi rocket program. You know the very kind of morally ambivalent moment when you know German rocket scientists are being brought,
3: yeah. being
0: brought to the US to to grab a march on the on the Russians. The, the fact that you know if you're a kid born in the nineteen fifties, as my dad was, who loved all this era, you know, it was. You know, there was so much possibility, you know, you might actually go to the moon. Um, and then we did. It's just, it's a really rich period of scientific advancement and social change as well. This idea that society could remake itself. I was mentioning about some interest in religion at the same time. So, yeah, there's a lot of energy which goes into into this sort of sci-fi popularity. And Heinlein is, is an important figure because... He is one of the first authors. he's credited as being one of the first authors to break out of just kind of genre pulp publishing. So he has a story that appears in the late forties in um, the Saturday Evening Post, which was a you know, popular mainstream magazine that was read across the country. And this was in the histories of sci-fi. This is always the moment that you know that sci-fi broke out. You know, he is a very interesting character. I mean, it's you know you compared him you know, what's called the other th- you know, the three of Clark and Asimov, but those names have remained in the kind of the broader cultural conversation, possibly, in a way that Heinlein hasn't. So I do think that his star has somewhat fallen in a way, perhaps, that some of the others, or then people who came later, who did different things with the kind of the the cultural revolution 60s, like Kurt Vonnegut. I think his ambivalence possibly, you know, has maybe been slightly his undoing, the fact that it is quite hard to know exactly what to make of it, in a way that, you know, perhaps something like sort of House Five, you know, is Mm. so sort of avowedly anti-war. Yeah, well,
2: I mean, Vonnegut is a superior writer anyway and, and has a sure hand with satire. So there are a lot of tangy ideas in Stranger in a Strange Land. Still worth questioning this idea of, you know, are we being controlled or released by organized religion? And the idea that replacing organized religion with something that is seemingly a little more spontaneous and free is also a different way to organize a religion. So it's just a one cult replacing another. And this idea that ways that humans accept as conventions and the only way to interact can be looked at from another angle, i.e. from Mike the Martian, who questions it. So all those ideas are really valuable to look at. How has the book held up today? Well, I
0: think as our discussion has sort of suggested, it's, I think elements of it seem naive or at least kind of hard to like perhaps from a from a sort of you know multiple decades on you know particularly things like the sort of the powerful sexism for example which really kind of runs counter to this argument of sort of freedom and obviously we know that this is a massive criticism that the 70s you know second wave feminism made about the free love movement that actually you know it was just a new way to to control, you know, female sexuality, um, you could tar, tar women with being a prude if you didn't want to, you know, immediately pop some birth control pills and, you know, that, give, give the, yourself to any man.
2: The thing that I always uh, recall is uh, in the Laurel Canyon music scene in the late 60s and early 70s, where, you know, everyone from Jim Morrison to the Mamas and the Papas, Joni Mitchell, Crosby Sills and Nash, you know, they all lived up in the canyon. And, you uh, Uh, I think it was Stephen Stills who said something like, oh, uh, birth control pills are fantastic. Like, you don't have to worry about knocking people up. And so it was not a question of like from the woman's point of view of like, oh, you know, I don't have to worry about raising a family before I'm ready. Um, It's just from the men's point of view of like, I don't have to be saddled with some screaming brat.
0: Yeah. And there's there's sort of you you can kind of give one point to Stranger in a Strange Land because there is it happens sort of off off camera, as it were, but Smith's mother is um, one of the scientists on the the, the the Martian mission that where they all die. But she um, she's presented as an incredible, incredibly able engineer and scientist, and she is credited with having invented the Lyle drive, which enables this interplanetary travel. And so, you, so that's like that's like the one kind of really exciting sort of positive sort of you know professional woman. Um, But yeah, otherwise, you know, all the sort of the treatment of, you know, even in this sort of slightly utopian, you know, we're all we're all fine. As I say, it still just looks like Hugh Hefner's, (laughs) you know, pad, pad because, you know, basically the women are just there to be secretaries and make the dinner, even though they've got modern technology. So it only takes about 30 seconds to get the dinner on the table. And they're very
2: they're very clever. These uh, serving wenches as well. I think it's got, you know,
3: we are rightly criticizing many aspects of or or shining a light on aspects of this book. Um, it's a good title.
0: Yeah, it's a very good title. It's
3: a quote from the book of Exodus. Is that right? It is because
0: Moses had to roam uh, away from his home. And this is the idea that Mike has... Yeah, it speaks to the tension in Mike's character, which, as I said, I don't think is so well developed. But this idea of, you know, where is he the stranger? Is he the stranger on Mars or is he the stranger Uh on Earth?
2: I'm wondering, Cara, what you think its true value is now. Because sometimes these books that even if they don't hold up as, as a work or, you know, any sort of cultural offering it still perhaps is an insight into mid-century America, or does it just operate as a little view into the inadequacies and fantasies of Robert A. Heinlein? I, th- I think it can probably be both.
0: Um, you know, I think w- on the one hand, exactly, you can... You also need to remember, I think it's very easy to, to imagine that kind of that trans- transition from the 50s to the 60s is almost like a light switch, that, you know, yeah. it's conservative 50s and then it's free love 60s. And actually, of course... There's, there's not, there's this transition moment. And I think that this, I think really does nicely sort of speak to that where you have, you do have somebody trying to kind of trouble existing conservative attitudes. And then what the public takes from it is, wow, wouldn't it be great if we were liberated, if, you mm-hmm. know, it, the free love, the kind of the sort of self-reliance, that, that all that sort of the stuff that then gets kind of adopted by the hippies. Whereas, as I've said, at the same time, it's also quite sort of oddly conservative, particularly in this sort of libertarian, you know, uh, you don't need anything from the government. You're better just looking after yourself. You know that's the best way to be. So I, yeah, I would, I would, I would say that sort of thinking about 1960, 61. This is a, this is a good, yeah, a good way to do it.
3: And to finish it, Cara, with uh, that final rule that uh, Robert Heinlein had for writing, keep story on market until it has sold. How much money did he make out of it? Did he fill his boots?
0: He did very well. It was, and it was significantly the first science fiction novel to make it onto the New York Times bestseller list, and that that was a big deal in terms of genre publishing. By all accounts, he wasn't very happy that it was being marketed as a science fiction. He thought that it should be something bigger, the sort of you know of the, the, the Great American <laughs> novel. But it, I think it. You know, it, it it served its its purpose, and it you know it continued to sell well. You know, even in the 90s when this longer edition was produced, apparently it sold five million copies by that point. What? You know, which is is quite remarkable, um, and it and it continues to be in print in multiple versions. You can get the sh- you can get the original short version, you can get this longer sort of director's cut. I like how you call it the original short version, and
2: that is over 600 pages. Yeah, <laughs> this is definitely relative. Listeners have gotten the full measure of our P. OV on this work but I wonder how it was received at the time Cara. So it it
0: actually wasn't very well reviewed in the sort of serious press although a lot of uh, it it found a lot of fans as we we discussed but I did enjoy this is Orville Prescott writing uh, in the New York Times in August 1961 he says uh, Mr. Heinlein writes of earthly and American matters from the supremely unworldly point of view of a Martian but his satire of international politics, religion various kinds of corruption and many ordinary customs is singularly Ineffective, crude and tedious. Mr Heinlein has little gift for characterization, a flippant and heavy breathing style, a, p- a ponderous sense of humour and a sophomoric, brackets, high school not college, enthusiasm for sex. Bitchy. It's difficult to tell whether Mr Heinlein thinks that his monotonous variations upon an erotic theme are funny or whether beneath all the verbiage and leering lubricity great. Oh. There is supposed to be some serious plea for the innocent promiscuity of Smith's cult. In either case, much of Stranger in a Strange Land is puerile and ludicrous. Oh,
2: what leering lubricity. What was this critic's
0: name again, Orville? This
2: is the amazingly named Orville Prescott. Well played, Orville. Oh, Orville, I am so in your corner. And I'm in your corner, Dr. Carr Rodway. Thank you so much for coming in and explaining <laughs> explaining the unexplainable. I I did my best, and it was a pleasure. Thank you.
4: Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast it's a series of lives being saved i'm ken harbaugh host of warriors in their own words a podcast that presents the unvarnished unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation
3: Well, Katie, that was very enjoyable. It feels like my eggs have been whisked or whatever it is that... What was meant to happen to my eggs?
2: Quickened.
3: Quickened, have they? I've poached my eggs while listening to that.
2: I'm, I've am i worked up quite an appetite. I'm feeling like I'd enjoy an omelette just about now or perhaps a souffle. I don't know why.
3: Are you going to find yourself dipping further into Robert Heinlein's back catalogue in the aftermath of this show?
2: Uh, I... I think I've had my fill of a stranger in a strange land and his very strange voice. I'm wondering if Billy Joel, as a young whippersnapper, was doing much like what I was doing, which is to flip through to the dirty bits.
3: I reckon the exact page numbers containing the dirty bits were well known in whichever (laughs) high school Billy attended. (laughs) (laughs) Page 562.
2: It's, you know, it is really frustrating because I am trying to get off reading this thing and you just can't, you know. As much There's a lot of like fanar, fanar, allusions to beautiful women serving men very eagerly uh, (laughs) wanting to induct Mike the Martian into the joys, the physical pleasures of being a human and him just going like, oh, I don't understand. So you can imagine that young Billy would have enjoyed that idea, that specter of ladies fighting to kiss him. And maybe that came to be. When he became a pop star.
3: I'm sure it did, Katie. <laughs> um, we will be back next week, of yes. course. As always, if you would like another podcast to listen to before then, have a listen to com. The Hacking. Now, .com is our tech strand, and it's you, Katie. It's you. Uh,
2: guilty as charged. It lifts the veil on the people of the Internet. This latest series, as you rightly mentioned, is called The Hacking, and it's all about the twisted and ripped-from-the-headlines world of Russian ransomware, where cyber gangs are hacking into companies, schools, supermarkets, the highest levels of government and Possibly they're lurking in your computer right now. They're stealing data and demanding insane ransoms for the return of this data. The attacks are on the rise, and I want to know who's behind them and why.
3: Katie, I'm quite happy to blow some smoke here. It is a totally immersive <laughs> and fascinating listen. Just search for .com, that is D-O-T-C-O-M, The hacking. And subscribe now.
2: And if you want more of Fire, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Twitter and we're at spread that fire. And if
3: you have any idea for guests, it might be you, it might be someone you know about, do get in touch. We are fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk.
2: And next week, Tom, the subject is Dylan. Give me a quick
3: Dylan impression.
2: Crowd Network.
3: A place where you belong.
1: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On conflicted,
4: Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create, and grew modern wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creosso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.
5: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute